I'm going to read verses 25 to 28. Matthew 11, verses 25 to 28. These are the words of Christ. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to you, we ask for help, Lord. May your Spirit enable us, O Lord, to listen, to think, Lord, and may your Spirit uh, revive us, O Lord, re refresh our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might love him more as we see more of his glory. We ask for this, O Lord our God, then, in his name, in Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, in the, in the second letter that the Apostle Peter uh, writes, he tells his readers to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the, end, to the day of eternity. Amen, he writes. So for the next few weeks, we're going to spend Sunday evenings specifically studying, specifically thinking about the Lord Jesus, that we might grow in our knowledge of him, and in doing so, we might give him the glory that Peter prayed for. It's incredibly easy for a church, even an evangelical church as ours, to lose sight of the main character to lose sight of the main player in how and why we became a church in the first place. And instead, we become, rather than a place of living faith and real love, we become a, a, a place of moralism. Or even worse, we become Pharisaic. In that, yes, we mention the name of Jesus Christ often enough, but we don't maybe mean it in our hearts. I'm often haunted by what the Lord Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. The church there was, it was a great church. I imagine if I lived in Ephesus at the time, I would have joined that church. A tremendous church. This, if you read Revelation chapter 2, you see there how this was a hard-working fellowship. This was a group of believers who were persevering through their persecution. They sought out false doctrine. They rooted out false teachers. Sound brilliant, the kind of place any of us would want to be a member of. But then we read in Revelation 2, verse 4, where the Lord Jesus says, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, in their church activity, they had slowly but surely, they had drifted away from their mooring. They're mooring to, to Jesus Christ. Yes, they were faithful. Yes, they were busy in carrying out the Lord's work but they weren't doing it out of a conscious love for the Lord. They had become evangelically religious. It's a bit like a LED light lamp. It gives out lots of light, but there's very little heat from it. And that's what they were as a church there in Ephesus. Yeah, they were holding out the light, but, but there wasn't much warmth and heat. 
And so Christ calls them to remember from where they have come, to remember, to repent, and to return, to go back to how they were in the old days. So we begin a, a new year, a new season of ministry. As we do that, let's refocus our minds on the person of Jesus Christ. Let's remind ourselves of his glory. Let's remind ourselves of his being, of his purpose, and and so on and so forth. But as we do that, let's also be praying that the Holy Spirit, because we need Him, okay, we really need the Spirit, for it's Him who will revive us as we hear about Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit, you see, who is that light, who, who makes Christ revealed. It's Him who must refresh our memory and revive our hearts to, to not merely do what we do because, you know, we got those emails last week, didn't we? And those half a million rotas that came out. And you're looking for your name. Where am I this week? What am I doing this week? We don't want to be merely doing that because we're on the rota, but that we would serve Christ again with renewed love, with renewed passion, because He is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a bit like the, in the Song of Solomon. You know, it's a difficult book to read and a difficult book to understand, even more difficult to preach. But in within that, there is this love, love between the groom and the bride. And the bride is saying to the groom, isn't he lovely? Oh, isn't he lovely? And that's what we want to have in our hearts as the bride of Christ. We want to think of our Savior and say, I'm tired, but isn't he lovely? And that's why I'm going to do it. That's why I'm coming out tonight. I'm tired, but I love him, and I want to worship him. I want to serve him. That's our hope in our study of uh, the person of, of Jesus Christ. But why Jesus? Why him? Why are we to grow in our knowledge of him in particular? There are many people, both within Scripture and out of Scripture, that if we're wanting to find inspiration for this new year, this new season of ministry— there are many people that we could think of, we could spend some time focusing on. You think of that great cloud of witnesses we read of in Hebrews chapter 11. If we went through that list, that list would certainly inspire us to live a life of faith and service as they did. Why Jesus? Well, think of what Jesus himself said in Matthew 12 and in Luke 11. He talked of how the people of Nineveh had responded to the preaching of the prophet Jonah. And he talked about how the Queen of Sheba had traveled many miles to listen to the wisdom of King Solomon. So, so there's two people that we could really benefit from studying, the great prophet Jonah or, or the great King Solomon. We would benefit for sure if we looked at those people. But, but Jesus says, look, there is one greater than even the prophet Jonah. There's one greater than even the wise King Solomon. We need to listen to him. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, the most important person, singularly the most important person in all of human history. Preacher James Allen Francis, I came across this quote. He, he was a preacher who famously said this of Jesus in a sermon. It's, it's a long quote, but I think it summarizes very well the uniqueness of, of who Jesus was in the, in the Gospels and, and his uniqueness still today. He said this, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then, for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never had a family of his own or owned a home. He never set foot inside 
big city as we know big cities today. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never wrote a book or held an office. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends deserted him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had, his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and led in a borrowed grave. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure for much of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navvies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary life, Jesus. So our subject is the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you have a systematic theology on your shelf, typically when you open it up and you look for the section on the person of Jesus Christ, usually it begins looking at the humanity of Jesus begins at ground level, as it were, and then goes up, it heads, heads heavenward to describe his deity, and, and then goes into the tricky uh, subject of how these two natures relate to one another, his deity and his humanity. I'm going to do it the other way around. I'm going to begin with his deity. I'm going to come down, as it were, from heaven. Well, I can say that without sounding. You know. <laughs> I'm going to begin up there where God is, looking at God, and, and then once we've we're getting our heads around that, then begin to look at how God revealed Himself in the incarnation of Christ. And in particular, I want to look tonight, uh, begin to look tonight at the relationship of, of Christ Jesus within what we refer to as the Trinity. We think of that word Trinity, it's a word that is never specifically used anywhere in Scripture. You'll never find it in a concordance. And yet it's a helpful expression to convey the truth of God's being as we find it in Scripture. Namely, that there is one living, true God. A God who is eternally indivisible. He is immutably or unchangeably one God, but as three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of those three persons is fully and equally God. Hence, we have the term Trinity, or triunity, or three-in-oneness. It's, it's, what, ref, it's what, what referred to as a, as a revealed doctrine. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity is a, a doctrine about God that you find in Scripture, not as a clearly formulated definition, but you find it in fragments. You find it in hints and allusions that we then piece together to define what we know as the doctrine of the Trinity. And those fragments begin in the Old Testament. For example, the, the plural sense of God. We saw that in our study of Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And in chapter 3, verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, after he has sinned, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. 
Then in chapter 11, in the account of the Tower of Babel, at verse 11, and the Lord said, Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language. So from the very beginnings, we're presented with a plurality within the mention of God. He is one God, and yet he refers to himself in the plural. There's also a plurality used where a plural noun is used to refer to God. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, you have that uh, text that's often used in youth missions. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. That word creator is in the plural, actually. Remember also your creators in the days of your youth. Isaiah 54, verse 5 says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And again, the nouns maker and husband are in the plural. Your makers is your husbands. You see the hints there, the little allusions to a plurality within the Godhead. But then you see that expand. It develops to, to show a differentiation between God in one sense from God in another sense. And again, it suggests to us that there is a distinction within the plurality. I'm reading lots of references tonight. I'm sorry. I've been trying not to make it sound like a lecture, but I need to read out the verses to show you what I'm trying to say to you. For example, in Psalm 45, this is a psalm that's later used in the book of Hebrews, where there the writer is trying to, to persuade the Jews he's writing to who he believe have come to faith, but the writer is wanting to emphasize to them the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You've come to faith. Now, don't go back to your old ways of Judaism. Psalm 45 verse 6 says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You see that? Now, the psalmist, who were the sons of Korah, the psalmist is referring to God and how his God has anointed him with oil and so forth. There's a distinction there within the plurality. That distinction is what the writer to the Hebrews uses in Hebrews 1 verse 8 for Jesus, for the Son, the Son within the Godhead. Another example is in Psalm 110 verse 1. There King David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This verse is the most quoted verse in the New Testament, hardly. It's the most important messianic text in the Old Testament. It's the verse that Jesus refers to in Matthew 22. Jesus is challenging the, the crowd's perspective. There he is talking to them, and he's, he's wanting them to think. He's challenging their expectations on who they are waiting for, who the Christ will be. What do you think about the Christ, he said? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? In other words, the person of the Christ, the incarnate one, wouldn't be merely a natural human descendant from David's line. But even the great King David refers to him as my Lord and 
that, if you think about it, that is commonly accepted terminology for God. He's my Lord. Also in verse 5 of Psalm 110, again, you get that distinction within the Godhead. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. That's God language. That God sat at the right hand of the Lord will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. There's distinction within the plurality of God. So, these are just some of, of, of the fragments, you see, the, some of the allusions that you find in the Old Testament. They're like pieces of a jigsaw laid out on your dining room table. Maybe you'd be doing one over Christmas, I don't know. And you're bringing them together. You're, the picture comes together on their own. You think, what is that? Then you join two or three other pieces to it, and it becomes a bigger picture. And then you see how that fits with that. And over time and so forth, we, we get this doctrine of the Trinity, within which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've also looked at theophanies, haven't we, within Scripture. We saw them in Genesis, uh, the appearing of the angel of the Lord, again often viewed as God, and yet referred to differently from God. In Genesis 16, we looked at where Hagar, do you remember, was pregnant, and uh, Sarah uh, didn't like the fact that her slave, her servant girl, was pregnant from Abraham, her husband. So Hagar runs away, and the Lord comes to Hagar as the angel of the Lord and tells her that her son would be called Ishmael and so forth. But she says this in verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, who spoke to her, the angel of the Lord. She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing, for she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Think of Joshua. Do you remember? Joshua saw the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua 5 verse 13. Zechariah says something similar in chapter 12 verse 8. Again, subtly, but it's there distinguishing between God and the angel of the Lord. We could look at others, I'm sure. These are hints at a plurality within God. Let me finish our look in the Old Testament with, with references, though, to, to Trinity. Because I've said there's a, there's a plurality, there's distinction within that plurality, but how do we come to the number three? Why could there not be four or five if there's a plurality? Why three? Where does the three come from? Well, particularly within Isaiah, the plurality hinted at is seen in three persons. For example, Isaiah 48 and verse 16. There, the prophet is speaking of the Messiah. He's talking of the anointed king. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now, the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. Three people, you see that? The Lord God has sent me, the Messiah, with his spirit. Three persons. Another example, Isaiah 63, verse 9, where the prophet is describing God's relationship with his people Israel. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. God was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. You see, 
third person there. Therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. There you have then three distinct persons yet again associated with being the same person. The same person who is afflicted and grieved. Person yet who saves them and redeems them and so forth. So, so the Trinity which becomes clearer as the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not a New Testament idea. This is not a Christian idea which the Jews had no idea about, but it was there. It's there as we would expect it to be there in the Old Testament, but as, as illusions, as, as hints, as shadows from the light of the New Testament upon it. B. Warfield says this about the Old Testament revelation of the Trinity. He says, it's like a chamber richly furnished but lightly, sorry, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out in clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. The light there which he's referring to, the light which shows up, which reveals the Old Testament, comes in the form of the New Testament. And it's remarkable how in the New Testament, the Trinity is assumed throughout it. It's quite remarkable. It's in the New Testament, in the new covenant age of the Messiah, that the identity of that Messiah is clearly revealed to be Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his person, in his deity, in his mission, and so forth. The promised Holy Spirit that we read of in the Old Testament, the third person of the Trinity, he is seen in the new covenant era. Uh, the anointing of Jesus, the establishing of the church, the, the indwelling of the church, and the gifting that he gives to the church, he's there. Not as a thing, like a, like a power. He is powerful, of course, but he's a person, a person who can be grieved. Remember my old systematic theology lecture telling me when certain people would come to his door who didn't believe in the Trinity, and uh, he would say, if I kicked my front door, they wouldn't feel it. that door wouldn't feel anything. It's, it's, a, it's a thing. But if I kicked you, you would feel it, wouldn't you? <laughs> yes, because you're a person. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with our sin. He feels it. He's living. He's God. God, the Holy Spirit. And you think of the four Gospels that God has blessed us with. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. John's would be the clearest on the deity of Jesus and the relationship of Jesus, of Christ within the Trinity, Christ and the Father. How in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14, John writes, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God, where is He, who is at the Father's side? Remember Psalm 110, verse 1? He has made Him known. This is exciting. Because you see the pieces of the jigsaw coming together, clicking, you hear the clicking, coming together. And we think of that unique event of Christ baptized, Jesus baptized, where there the Trinity is manifest. There he is in the water, the Son, 
And you hear the voice from heaven, the Father saying, this is my beloved Son. And then John writes how he said, I saw the Spirit descending and alighting upon Jesus in the form of a dove. Three people. It's clearly. How could you not believe in the Trinity? Come on. We're told in Matthew 28 to make disciples of Jesus, to teach them his commands and baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Why use all three names if not to stress the Trinity, the the triune Godhead, three persons equally God with each person's involvement in the disciples' new identity. Baptizing the person The word says in the name of, but it's actually into the name of, into each of the persons since each of them, all three of them are involved in our redemption. The Father who willed that we should be saved. The Son then, the Father sent, the Son who came into our world and accomplished that willed salvation. And then the Holy Spirit of God who then renders that blood-bought salvation to us. He, he applies that bought salvation to His people. Three people within the Godhead. Three people, distinct people with different roles, which is interesting if we were to explore the doctrine of Trinity more and how that applies to us as, as, as a church. Three distinct people with different roles and yet one purpose. You see the unity there in the Trinity that the church is always to to imitate and follow. We could refer to other references to show this assumption. Uh, You can read for yourself in Acts 16 and you read in verses 6 to 10 where Paul has that vision of the Macedonian saying, you know, save, come over and save us. Yeah, remember that? Read it. You see the Trinity and it's in there. Even the nativity story, we've just come out of Christmas, haven't we? And we remembered how the angel Gabriel told Mary how she was a virgin, yet she would become pregnant with the child. And he told her in Luke one thirty-five, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. It's Trinitarian. It's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Holy Spirit working together through our humanity to bring about the promised salvation of sinners in fulfillment of those hints and illusions, those Old Testament shadows and prophecies. It's there. So if we can accept the fact of the Trinity, of one living eternal God, of three distinct but equally divine persons, then what is it? What, what was and what is the relationship within that Trinity of the Son to the Father. We'll look more at this next week, but let's just start to look at it tonight. In Matthew 11, we've finally come to the text. That was all my introduction just. We've finally come to the text of what we read earlier. You get the sense of the uniqueness, you see, of the relationship between the Father and the Son within the Trinity. Matthew 11, verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, these mysteries of salvation and identity of Christ. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses 
to reveal him. There's clearly in that verse this mutually exclusive knowledge, isn't there, of the Father and the Son, how they, how they know each other in a way that no one else does. No one knows the Father except the Son. There's a depth of knowledge there shared within that triune Godhead, a, a mutually complete, a, a mutually exhaustive knowledge, one of the other, that, that we can only begin to share something of, anything of, if they allow us, if they reveal it to us. Paul, for example, tells us in Romans chapter 1 that we can know that God exists through what He has created. He tells us it's, it's clear to the whole world that there is a Creator God, a One who, who made the heavens and the earth. But to know God intimately in that personal sense, for any of us to share in this unique relationship we, we see something of here in Matthew 11, this is something that it can only happen as God wills it. And I say God graciously wills it. And since the Son is the Word made flesh who came and dwelt among us, and since He, the second person of the Trinity, no one has seen God but He who is at the right-hand side, He has made God known. Since that second person of the Trinity has revealed God to us, then the gospel invitation is to come by faith exclusively to Jesus, to Jesus. I've, I've kind of taken you a long way in a sense here, okay? Because in a sense, in our age of plurality, in the age of diversity and inclusivity, in a sense, we have reached the climax here with Jesus Christ. When we think of a world that is full of religions, full of claims on deity and claims on the way of salvation. Come my way and you'll live, maybe. But we've come to the point in tonight's message where, where Jesus is singularly the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father, he says, except through me. Think of that. I mean, that is profoundly, either profoundly true or profoundly arrogant. This is eternal life, Jesus prayed in John 17, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Nobody else but Jesus. That is amazing. That is profound. Think of that verse tonight. We're going to look again next week, God willing, at more of this relationship within that trinity of the Son to the Father. But for now, as we close, can we see the profound distinctiveness of the Lord our God? the only true God, as Jesus calls him, the only true God, one God and three persons. It's illogical, isn't it? It's irrational, isn't it? But it's true. It's, it's, it's a mystery. The Lord, our God, is not three gods. I stood here at the front talking to a young Muslim lad and trying to explain to him about it. And he said, so there's three gods, is there? I said, no, there's one God, three persons. And I could tell by the look on his face. I even heard myself saying, that's crazy, David. How could you believe that unless the Holy Spirit persuaded you? Not three gods, but one God is three divine persons. And therefore, our worship ought of Him to be Trinitarian. That's what we've tried to do tonight. Worshiping the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, but recognizing all three, honoring all three in our worship of Him. And again, as we close, can we appreciate how, how biblical truth completely smashes to pieces the whole modern interfaith movement. It, 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 I, it frustrates me how I see these national churches allowing their holes to be used for Buddhists or for 
you know, Muslims or whoever else, but come on in, sure. We're all going to the same place, aren't we? Your path is up that side of the mountain. Our path is up this side of the mountain. But we all get to the same peak one day, won't we? What a load of nonsense. What a load of nonsense. Christ Jesus singularly, exclusively is the way to the Father. So we think of our king's coronation this year. Our king who wants to be known as defender of the faith and yet within his coronation wants to involve other religions. He cannot be saved, sadly, our king. That is what he believes. We pray for such people, religious people, but naive and wrongly taught people, I think. They need to know the truth because the truth frees us from the error that leads to hell. The truth frees us to know the living God. The one God as three persons, and through his Son, we know him as our Savior. We live, we have life, full and abundant life, to live for his glory. Well, may God help us as we continue in our series. Hopefully it won't go on as long as tonight and subsequent night, but this was very much an introduction as we look at Christ. Let's, let's just worship him in our hearts as we pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Thank you for the Bible. And our prayer, Lord, is as we study the Bible more and more, that you will show us your glory, please. Refresh our memory, Lord. These are things which we are familiar with, but Lord, in refreshing our memory, Lord, rekindle that flame on the altar of our hearts, that we may love our Savior more and more and serve him with zeal and enthusiasm and with first love again. Bless us, we pray. Please, God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.